Are you tired of relying on landmarks, smoke signals, and pump jacks to get to location? When you do use apps such as Google Maps, Waves, or Apple, they only get you in close proximity to the well site location, but figuring out how to get to the location often comes with its own headaches of navigating lease roads. And if you're a dispatcher managing a fleet, how do you show your drivers exactly where to go to get there? Getting lost while driving to locations is a common theme in our industry. Navigating through unnamed roads can be frustrating and brutal. In our industry where time's money, getting lost is anything but efficient and acceptable. In fact, oil field workers say they spend on average over 20 minutes a day lost on lease roads, if not hours. Sound familiar? I got some game-changing news for you right here, so listen up. Wellsite Navigator is introducing the new technology you've been asking for, lease road navigation. They've already mapped over 19,000 miles of oil field lease roads that don't appear anywhere else, and every week they're adding more. Wellsite Navigator is the most trusted, most downloaded oil field mobile app of all time. Founded almost 10 years ago as the first navigation app for the oil field, they've helped more than 100,000 oil field hands find millions of well sites in 22 states quickly, safely, and reliably. Most of their users come from word of mouth, so help spread the word. They're giving all Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast listeners, their first month free when you click on the link in the show notes. Plus, when you refer a friend, they get their first month free and you get a $10 Amazon gift card. Follow the link in our show notes to get started. Make your life easier. I'll bring in invoke a bit of a baseball analogy here. We have been, I say we, my son is 17, he's a junior, he's a pitcher. Uh, but back when he got into kid pitch in Little League, or right before he got into kid pitch, I decided I was going to turn over the pitching instruction to an expert. And I just got randomly referred to a guy who was with the National Pitching Association. And that is, that is Tom House who was a real innovator and is viewed in, in a lot of ways as uh, somewhat eccentric as well. He had you know, his pitchers when he was a pitching coach with the Texas Rangers throwing footballs in the 90s, and there's a, lot, there's a lot around that. No one has better data and information. Tom, 74, he's been doing this for a long time, but he also is a great example of someone who is able to adapt and changed based upon new information and the learning that comes from it. And he does it very objectively. And so, you know, he works with the best in the world. He works with Tom Brady, for example. Those guys are seeking not 5 to 10%, but maybe a half percent to 1% improvement, which for an elite athlete. But that's all based upon better information and better data in terms of training and decision-making. And it's, you know, it's proven to be very successful in, in my experience um, you know, I, I'm glad I, I went that path with something pretty important, which is arm health and being a very, very efficient pitcher. And, you know, we've seen the results of that. Now that's been, you know, that's been a nine year process for us, but are we doing the same things that we were doing nine years ago? No, the program has adapted because the data has changed. And I know it's, it's, uh, much to your chagrin, but um, being a Dallas Cowboy fan, you know, the Cowboys back in the seventies made these wild draft picks out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Two tall Jones, the number one overall pick who's ever some walls from Grambling state, sure. et cetera. And that was all driven by the computer. You always right. heard about the computer. 
The whole basis. I, I had forgotten about that. But remember, you know, it was all about the computer. The whole basis of the computer was this. They hired a guy from India to run the system that knew nothing about football. And what he did is he graded each player coming into the draft, and then at year three, year five, and year seven in their career. And he went back and said, okay, our initial assessment, how did it compare? And just being objective, looking at data, what he found out was every scouting system by every NFL team was set up by geography, and that was driven by cost. So a scout worked Florida because they could get in their car and drive around and go see Florida State and Florida play and all that. And what the, he found out is the guy in Florida wasn't necessarily good at every position. He was better at running backs, where the guy in the Northeast was better at offensive linemen. So the Cowboys uh, took film data of all the players they were looking at, sent it to every scout, and the computer actually weighed what the guy in Florida, who's good at running backs, said about all the running backs. More. What more than the guy in California, who turns out to be better at cal at quarterbacks and that's why they were so much better at drafting back in the day was just they kind of turned scouting on its head the the first chapter and i think it's the undoing project talks about daryl moray who used to be the gm of the rockets right. when they got in a little bit of political hot water for his comments uh, a couple of years ago but anyway <clears throat> they talk about, and, and Daryl was probably the pioneer in the NBA in terms of of having these types of models, right? And being very, very data, very robust from a data, and kind of an un, trying to take as much bias out of scouting and player selection and development. And the first chapter is about him and the whole evolution. It's titled "Man Boobs." And it talks about the fact that the Rockets passed on uh, Mark Gasol because someone had seen a picture of him on the beach in Spain and so made judgments about his skills, capabilities, and just kind of talent as a player. And they go in and describe, you know, what restrictions they put on scouts going forward in terms of interviewing players, um, whether, you know, it had to do with geography or uh, other kinds of, of biases and preconceived notions. And it really changed the way that they went through their player evaluation and ultimately selection. I, I guess everything in this somewhat modern era, everybody points back to Moneyball, right? The, the, the Oakland A's story, but it's, it's, it's gotten much more sophisticated than that. And that I'd, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with them about, you know, all the metrics and statistics and things that they look at that, you know, bust conventional wisdom about productivity and, and potential. Like first step, Jeremy Lin had one of the quickest first steps ever, right? At least in his, in his yeah. draft peers. But people didn't perceive that for whatever reason. Yeah, the interesting thing about Moneyball 
was not that he was using statistics to come up with better players. He was using statistics to create the most runs he could given his limited budget, right? Right. And he found that in the marketplace, someone that could walk and get on base was underpriced vis-a-vis someone that just had a lot of RBIs. And generally, they had a lot of RBIs. One, they were a good player, but two, they were also given the position to, to generate it. And so if you look at the machine that Jeff Luno built, again, forget about trash cans. Right. My, the, the most um, surprising thing to me when I got my first tour and got to spend some time with the various front office groups, they had scouting, they had R&D, they had international, was twofold. One, just how small the headcount overall was. And two, how young the front office right. is. And I look at, you know, I've seen various presentations on analytics headcount per front office staff and the growth over time with some of the, you know, the large market teams tend to solve the problem or try to solve the problem by throwing a lot of money and increasing headcount. Houston has remained relatively lean and leveraged in its in its analytics capability. I don't know how that's changed since uh, Click took over as GM, but... <clears throat> I mean, you had someone who was part of uh, Luno's front office in St. Louis that actually broke in to the Astros data system and went to prison right. for that. So there, there's something different about that model. And, you know, they didn't answer all the questions that you were, you know, just chomping at the bit to ask. And for example, I was, it's a name that has, now been associated with a bit of infamy, Brandon Taubman, who was his assistant GM, who Luno's assistant GM, who got fired after his unfortunate outburst in the clubhouse after the right. ALCS in 2019. But I noted that in the R&D room, you had one guy who looked, you know, he was the, the gray-haired sage. He may have been all of 35 years old, but he had a PhD, come to find out, and this, this was among the data scientists uh, function that, you know, translated what scouting needed to have. Um, but, <clears throat> and they were developing the tools, the analytics tools. But I asked Taubman, I said, hmm, so-and-so has a degree in a PhD in behavioral psychology. I care to expand on that a little bit more. He said, nope. <laughs> so, so there is a, there's a lot of intangible stuff in terms of how that all comes together. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the evolution of that under new leadership. We've, we've had one full season post all that, and you know, hopefully they'll play this year. I, 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 Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Cool guest today, Mark Meyer. Mark, thanks for coming in. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking. Oh, absolutely. This is a, So I love what you're wearing because we're set up, as you can tell, this is a different camera angle than we normally do the podcast. We're playing with things at Digital Wildcatters. And uh, we were setting this up. This is the BDE uh, studio. 
And I was tired of the way we did podcasts at Digital Wildcatters where we had the awkward, you sit next to each other and you kind of look over at each other and you look at the camera. So I was like, I want Joe Rogan style. I want to be able to sit there, look at my guests, talk about all this. And we set all this up yesterday and I realized if we wear black, we will look like <laughs> floating heads. <laughs> I was originally going to wear my favorite piece of TPH swag, which is a Marmont vest. It's in black as a nod to Maynard and Bobby's last day at TPH. So yeah, I got the email. I got the email yeah. uh, yesterday about that too. Yeah. Maybe if you would have worn a white shirt under it, <laughs> then, then that would have worked. But uh, yeah, I had visions of us, just these floating heads. Well, the risk of, of this particular uh, fleece is that we get detoured into baseball conversation, which I'm always willing to go well, Hayes and pretty I deep did on. That. Hayes and I did yeah. that. So we'll, we'll, definitely, we'll definitely touch on baseball. Now, I think the first time, it seemed like you and I had known each other uh, a long time, just kind of finance to finance. But I think the first time we really hung out was it six or seven years ago, but in Nashville, because at Tudor Pickering Holt, you used to do a deal where you'd pull together some folks in the industry, hang out, do country music, but at the same time have kind of a closed door Chatham House rules discussion on energy, which was really cool. Yeah, I found that, you know, it was a free form discussion. We had private equity leadership. We had hedge funds. And, and me, but anyway. We had, yeah, and, you, <laughs> and me. But. Fixed income. We had, you know, uh, Dan participated from his perspective, both of uh, a leader of sell side research and then uh, running TPH asset management at that time and just mixed it up. Um, the one that I recall was in 2016, most notably, which was right in front of the election. And so that event was always scheduled to coincide with uh, really a destination or an event uh, which our guests could bring significant others and attend the country music, uh, the CMA Awards in Nashville. Um, one of my life, longtime friends, I never had a brother, but he is like the brother I never had as a 35-year music executive, uh, actually from Texas, but has lived in Nashville for uh, a number of years and ran the CMA for a while and uh, really a career in, in promotion. Um, done a lot with him, both um, just as a, as a friend, but also uh, helping him with uh, a foundation, a charity that he runs in Nashville as well. So a bit of unique access, I guess. And we created an event around that, uh, which, you know, the discussions of the roundtables that you alluded to always had, had a lot of depth and a lot of, I think a lot of substance to them. Uh, well, and what was cool is I would be pigeonholed in my EMP world, <laughs> private startups and the like, hearing a refiner talk about the issues they're dealing with, talking about hearing a fixed income person talking about LIBOR rates and the like, and you just realized how much all of these pieces fit together that it, it, I don't think I ever appreciate. It is all connected. And I, you know, I go back to when um, I left Simmons in the mid-2000s to start my buy-side career. I started out with Jerry Castellani at Castle Arc in Chicago, so I didn't have enough sense not to get in back into a commuting situation. So I was flying to Chicago every week. Uh, it was a great, you know, intro into portfolio management for me. And 
at that time, the really the convergence between the midstream and the transformation that the midstream was undergoing relative to what was happening in the upstream, moving much more toward GNP asset centric and away from more of the traditional pipeline and, and terminaling assets. And so that really sparked an interest in understanding how the convergence and so when you're with when what you're a, with, what affects one affects the other. Yeah. Right? So when you're with Jerry, is it long only public traded securities? What was kind of the we what we had were you doing we there? had some we had both. We had a main fund that was long short with a lot of discretion in terms of exposure, either direction, um, and then we had some dedicated long only accounts, um, really just building into uh, mostly endowment world. In, okay. in terms of our LPs that wanted exposure. And Jerry's one of the most knowledgeable investors and certainly energy investors, in, I think, in, in the world. Um, so it has, has been short, for a long time. So the long short stuff was more trying to provide an absolute return yes. to, to folks. And then the long only was, hey, you need your energy exposure. Here we are. And how were- and I, so, I've always lived in an absolute <laughs> world, uh, both- during my time at Castle Ark, which was shorter, and then uh, the funds that uh, Rob Raymond and I co-founded at RCH uh, shortly after I I, uh, I left Castle Ark. So that that's actually pretty interesting because I think the one thing perspective has done for me, you know, being unemployed now, going on whatever eighteen months is, I mean, I was two weeks out of Kane when I looked up and said, "Man, shit, it's just all beta." I mean, you know, beta dominates this. Running around chasing alpha probably led to really stupid mistakes. It was hard to do. I think John Farber's comment about it was, well, of course, Yates, you've never achieved alpha. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, so were you trying to be trying to be beta neutral at the end of each day or no, just, just trying to absolute return, absolute return. And we had, uh, I'll, I'll speak to, Really, the framework of how we looked at risk at RCH, uh, we ne we never levered any of our funds. Um, we took risk in the form of concentration, and when I'm talking concentration, I'm saying core positions could be double digit percentages. And our philosophy was that we were underwriting the assets and the companies and the stocks from a perspective of deeper industry knowledge, technical knowledge of the asset class. And if we were going to take risk, it was going to be risk that we were able to, to assess and frame. Um, so we never levered any of, any of our funds either on the, on the, uh, the more E&P centric ones that I ran and, and certainly not on the midstream side. So what were what was the investor mindset back then? Why were they investing with you? Were they because it it you know it's my sense on at least on the private equity side, call it two thousand five to two thousand seven, two thousand eight somewhere in there we started becoming an allocation. It was you know back in the late nineties Ken Hirsch would go in raise money for NGP. And it was energy's great. And he's competing in the private capital bucket with buyout venture, all the other stuff. You know, fast forward mid 2000s to 2010, we become an allocation. And then it's why us versus NCAP, et cetera. And so you, you really saw the mind, 
mindset of the investor changed during that period? What was going on on the public side kind of with your investors? What, why were they giving you money? Yeah, it was a little different for us at the beginning, kind of pre-2008, nine, because we were building off of a legacy base of mostly high net worth family office investors with which we had direct relationships and access through you know, the work that Rob had been doing with RCH prior to that and really establishing one of the largest and I think most successful MLP portfolios coming out of the Crow family office. Uh, that, right. that whole joint effort RCH started in the summer of 2004. And so <clears throat> we we actually first started talking. I had been, when I was at Simmons, uh, Crow was an account or a client and I had established a relationship with Rob as an analyst when he was at Crow. And fast forward to my time at Castle Art, I was meeting with Rob marketing our funds and Harlan Cornvase, who you may know, uh, HBK Capital, one of the original Rainwater guys. Um, we were talking a lot about the convergence uh, between the midstream and the upstream. And most of my experience and expertise uh, was heavily E&P or upstream oriented. And, you know, it, it really sparked an idea that there was an extension of what RCH was doing that we could create some strategies together that, um, you know, around the long short model and, and, and the, uh, and the long only model that would take advantage of, you know, I, I, I think at that time we said to do a good job of investing in the midstream, you've got to have a much better understanding, much deeper understanding of what's going on in the upstream and vice versa. And that was really the 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 coming together moment. So uh, we launched that in March of, of 2007 and, you know, raised capital fairly quickly, pretty small size, um, drafting on the relationships that, that Crow and RCH had already built. The thing that changed it for us, <clears throat> and I think the whole institutional mindset changed after obviously 2008, 2009, we had one of our best years in 2008. I think because of that that um, integrated due diligence that we- Yeah, I mean, that's the shale revolution. I mean, people are actually out there, you know, drilling wells, creating supply where well, you know, way more supply than we'd seen. Well, because of our window into the midstream and what was going on with demand, just based on crude and product flows that that we were seeing, we were able to see that, you know, at 120 going to 147 dollar WTI, that we've got a demand problem, and so we were able to shorten up the ENP centric book, the long short book, the main fund that I ran. Uh, we were able to shorten that up pretty substantially in front of the the carnage. And so we ended up, I think we were down on a gross basis a little over 3% in 2008, which compared very favorably with the uh, the indexes. Not that we were benchmarking, but others were looking at that. And we go to some cap intro conferences and institutions are starting to take interest and they want, you know, they want more beta and exposure in their portfolios. And that's what I learned from some of these allocators uh, on the institutional side is that they wanted more beta and the volatility was fine. Um, you really start to get into it where you have a fund, 
philosophy and framework and a set of fun rules that allow you the discretion to take as much direction, either long or short. We're, we were mostly long. That's, you know, I, I think long investors are wired one way and generators on the alpha side, uh, on the short side, uh, alpha generators on the short side are a, a, a different animal. But um, that, it, that started to attract a lot of institutional attention and we grew pretty quickly after that moment of, you know, outperformance, even though we didn't make an absolute return in 2008. Um, we didn't suffer the drawdowns and were able to participate in a lot of the, the interesting things coming out of 2008 into 2009. There was a lot of dislocated uh, high yield, as you know, in some companies that uh, had very good asset coverage. And so those trading opportunities were not very abundant, but there was some pretty outsized opportunities. Um, you know, we, we were looking to connect with institutions that wanted deeper knowledge about the asset class. It was on the cusp coming out of uh, gas shales into oil shales. Yeah. If you remember Haynesville, <clears throat> Aubrey well, had I the, remember, I mean, this is wild, but I remember back in 2005 with Dave Lenormand <laughs> drilling an oil well that made 1,500 barrels a day, and that was the kiss of death. You were just like, oh, my God, this is going to be horrible because in three days it's going to be 100 barrels a day and then nothing. And it really, watching the transformation of horizontal oil well bad to horizontal oil well good was, uh, was pretty interesting. I, I remember going to one of the IPAA just conferences in New York, and Aubrey was one of the keynotes. And he basically talked about you know, the collapse on the gas side was a function of us being too good at what we do. And he was, he was exactly right. And I was a firm believer that, you know, oil's harder, the molecules are bigger, they're much more complex. We're talking about tight rock. We certainly can't do this on the oil side. Well, we did, right? right? And it just speaks to how great this industry is with, you know, innovation and applying technology and techniques that, you know, make otherwise uneconomic and impossible geology to exploit, exploitable. Now we, we can go into a discussion around, you know, IRRs and, and right, right. the, the well watching game. And, you and know, do all we this... still use paper ledgers for the back office, <laughs> right, but right, yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. So, um, in, in our experience, in my recollection, the institutions were looking for, they were looking to up their beta exposure. We were oriented much more fundamentally, our mission was always to generate outsized absolute returns. Uh, yes, we 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 did a lot of active hedging in our books. We were quite active in some of the equity options where we had big positions, et cetera. But um, one of the things that changed all that fairly rapidly is that you started jamming a bunch of market neutral pods into the equation, and that became I think a recipe for a lot of liquidity, liquidity trying to force its way into a, still a fairly small pipe, and you know, you you'd have periods where the trading behavior of stocks um, diverged a bit from what you believe the fundamentals uh, pointed to, and that month to month can create some some eye popping results both both directions if you you know if you've got long exposure. Yeah, you know, my sense from that 
is maybe kind of through the 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 mid nineties to the early nineties, it just felt like energy investing was your inflation hedge. Right. Yeah, you, you know, just kind of well, we gotta have exposure to it. And if you're disciplined enough that when prices pop and you sell some, you always you always made some money. I think you saw a little bit with 3D seismic of holy shit, there's some alpha here. I mean, we can go image something and all this. And I do think that when the shale revolution happened and you saw it with gas and then then with oil, the investors actually were saying they wanted kind of more beta, but they were really going, no, there's an alpha story here that kind of turned into a bubble, you know, that money just kept pouring into Chesapeake, et cetera, and the, and the like. I, I'll speak to that, and you'll remember this history. Um, natural gas closed 1231-2000 at 10 spot zero zero for MMBTU. And I remember I was covering all of the names at the time, XTO, Louis-Dreyfus, you know, there's a, there's a blast from the past. All the, you know, the, the, the big, bigger gas-levered right. names that had really come on the scene early as it became an investable story and unconventional on the gas side. There were a number, including Chesapeake, that first week of January of 2001, they announced these big, juicy collars on 12 to 18 months of production, as I recall. I'm, I'm talking, you know, five by nines type of stuff. Right. And stocks got absolutely hammered. Yeah. Because the belief was <clears throat> this thing is going to continue to run to the upside. And I remember as we were putting together our story, this is this is the interesting part of of the growth of Simmons on the research side that, you know, that Dan and and Matt had the, I think, the vision to expand beyond oil field services. If you know anything about Simmons and Company's legacy, it started in 74, strictly oil field services banking, took on securities in 90 or 91. The great late great Mike Fraser uh, built and ran that business. For Simmons, and then um, diversified into other things, including EMP. Last, somewhat ironically, in the late '90s with me, but they had missed the the downturn in '97, '98. That that inflection point. This time, we had at least a franchise that was directly following the EMPs, and so big credit to my. Number two, really, my partner Ryan Zorn, uh, who you may know, has been in Colorado for a long time now. He's from Colorado, but um, we took we took a basin level view and said because the oilfield services analysts were asking the question, and I think the spark for all of that was Bob Allison had said in Platts in an interview, "It doesn't matter if gas goes back to two we're still going to keep blowing and going in the Bozier. And I think they had, I think Anadarko had 60 some odd vertical rigs running at that time. And I'll, I'll put it a little bit inelegantly. We looked around and decided to call bullshit on that. Right. And so um, we started building what I believe were the first type well models by Basin using what then was known as Dwight's PI data <laughs> and running out decline curves and then putting, you know, putting calculations on uh, various costs and price sensitivities based on cost structure, based on, you know, our view of what, of what the, the decline profile and the recovery looked like. And so what 
what's rational to do at certain certain price levels and cost structures and and make a you know a rough cut at what rig count at that time i think the peak for gas directed drilling was 1068 rigs sticks in my mind that was in june or july of 2001 and leading up to all that we were marketing that <clears throat> if you start seeing a problem in the early injection period in storage with injections that had typically been in the mid 80s per week bcf per week if you start seeing triple digit numbers then you've got a problem from a demand side that's how we were going to define it and then on the other side we were looking at the potential for laying down rigs because the projects at at lower price levels became uneconomic you know elevated cost structure because it was a fairly inflationary period and that's indeed what happened we pulled the plug on the cycle which was you know just a, a, a great group call. It's one of the, you know, one of the best calls that that I've been associated with, and you know, got our clients out of the way. I mean, we didn't perfectly time it, but we we saw what was coming uh, from the standpoint of both demand and then ultimately what a rational player investing in tight gas wells would do at certain uh, uh, cost and price frameworks. Yeah, no, because <clears throat> it was. I mean, I remember back in, I don't know, some point in the kind of mid to late 90s, Louis Dreyfus, that was their thing. We have this great trading organization we're associated with. We're going to hedge out. We're going to drill a well. We're going to know what it produces. We're going to hedge that out. We're going to lock in a return. And it traded at like one times EBITDA because of it. The market just hated it. So it was clearly... A lot of the investable dollars were there because they wanted exposure to the commodity, hedge inflation, all that. <clears throat> and then we transitioned into this alpha of, hey, we can go use new technology, drill horizontal wells, we can make all this money and do great things. And what I think kind of happened in that is you you went from all these institutions establishing allocations, 10 and 12% um, and throwing money at it. And I think at the end of the day, it just became kind of the classic bubble and you're at the mercy of the beta there. Now, that's me as a private equity guy trying to defend the fact that my track record is 1.2 times your money and an 8% IRR, which by the way, is one of the better ones out there. Right. But yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to talk about track record, right? The well, and 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 you don't see, and and maybe it's because I'm not in the flow or in in the market right now. But you don't, you know, nobody on the public side is out raising a dedicated energy fund, the way we think about it, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know how many of the market neutral pods are left. I know there was a fair bit of contraction around that. Um, but, and with, you know, a lot of institutional pressure to not invest and you and I have talked about it, um, way back when, back at the, um, the onset of COVID and separation and all that, that I think we were talking about the notion of SPACs and you said, look, nobody is going to touch anything hydrocarbon related, uh, in SPAC world. Yeah. And that was, you know, a year and a half ago. Yeah. And I did join the 
passport of Black Mountain. Right, right. No, so, <laughs> of course, uh, of course, see that. But no, it's it's it's, it's, it's definitely it, one, one of Dan's adages that I'll interject here, and we we still joke about it. Is you know, it's never different. And if you say it is, and especially in print, then you're fired, right? As a research analyst. So um, I think that your your point about and and the anecdote about you know the stocks that. I think took the very astute step of putting some surety around outsized cash flows, meaning the collars that some thoughtful operators put on at the beginning of 2001 after seeing $10 gas with a bit of a nod to demand, but nobody talked about it. I mean, everybody talked about their supply analysis till the end of time. We couldn't grow production, et cetera, et cetera. But I think those that needed some surety of cash flows, certainly for maintenance capital, um, whether we were explicit about it or not, that was just a good business decision. But the investment community at that time said, uh, don't don't cap my upside in the commodity. Right. Okay. <laughs> Go buy the commodity. Uh, these are uh, these are th- these are businesses that have, you know, and I think one of the reasons uh, XTO was my best call ever. Uh, I covered it when I went to Goldman and this was still very much at the cusp of going from exploration driven uh, conventional models to the unconventional engineering driven. The manufacturing uh, Manufacturing. I, I yeah. don't really like that term when we're talking about geology, but right. that's another kind of old guy. Um, old finance guy thing. Yeah. yeah. Manufacturing. Yeah. It's not manufacturing when... Mother Nature's involved. Yeah, it's um, actually hard as shit. Yeah, it's hard as shit. And <laughs> although uh, this was great back when I was at Stevens, the old guy John Jacoby that kind of ran all the mm-hmm. Stevens family money, really smart guy, had seen everything in investing. Anytime you brought a manufacturing business in to invest in, he'd always say, "Man, I hate this because every time we try to make shit, it breaks." <laughs> <laughs> another another term we used to bristle at was "crack the code." Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's not that simple. Exactly. But, um, you know, what happened post the transition from gas, post the financial crisis into oil became really a very different animal um, from from an an allocation and investing standpoint. I I think chasing alpha, and, and I never ran a market neutral strategy, I just really just given the fundamental dynamics of the NP sector, uh, particularly when you're talking about small and mid caps, which is where you generate most of your alpha. And we were trying to do it through deep underwriting and, and concentration in our portfolio. Um, that is not, sometimes that is in some cases masquerading as, as alpha when it's really beta. And there were so many distortions coming into the day-to-day trading as a result of a jam of a lot of funds doing the exact same thing. You know, I I don't know how many pods there were in total at one time, but I know one firm had 15 energy pods from what I could tell were doing the exact same thing in the sector. And it, it just, it, it made for a lot of difficult to maneuver around trading behavior and you'd get these periods of disconnect from the fundamentals. And then you're, you know, your investors were looking around and they see elevated volatility and it's, it, it reaches a point where 
<clears throat> you know, institutions have got, they've, they've got other rules that they have to follow. Um, what I would say is, is that the, the notion that we want more exposure, we want more beta, we don't mind the vol until that is truly tested in reality, um, I think is, is one that you have to take with a grain of salt because when it does start happening, I mean, you, you would see, I'm not saying, I'm not talking specifically to our numbers, but you would see moves on a long, short basis, you know, upper to mid single digits, sometimes higher than that, similar to the downside, right? That's a month to month thing. I don't think anything in this asset class, particularly on the EMP side, is fits well with an investment horizon under kind of 18 to 36 months because you've, you've really got to generate the data, um, particularly from a, an asset level standpoint of understanding what the decline profile looks like. What, what, what does that asset look like from a reserve potential that that's important. And if you're, you know, jerking things around on a 24 hour IP announcement, it, it, it just, it, it makes continuity tough. Yeah. If, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I may take us off the, the freeway um, as we're kind of going through the narrative real quick. Um, but one of the things I think is the biggest problem just investing in our industry is the transparency of the data. I mean, you get one reserve report at the end of the year. For most of our career, it used the December 31st price deck, right. whatever it was. And well, it wasn't even a price deck. It was the price, the that, price that, that day. day. Yeah. You just ran it out. Yeah. That's whatever it that's is. The way that, that worked. Yeah. Natural gas prices double that day. Let's use in the it. old, the old sec standard of reasonable certainty. Yeah. Right. And you have this, um, you've always had this probabilistic versus deterministic, um, debate raging among the, the, the real denizens of the, SPWE community. Uh, and we, we said, we, we launched on a, a collection of shale stocks back in mid 2000s. And it was a compendium report, names like Gasco and <laughs> Southwestern was in there. It was right at the, you know, at the, the dawn of the Fayetteville. I think Quicksilver was part of it. I don't recall all the Evergreen, some of the other names. Right. But, uh, we we were very explicit that you're not buying. We called it the story stock report. You're not buying these for their proved reserve value. So we had these waterfall charts that showed the stack of evaluation, and and clearly, if you're paying for high visibility proved reserve value, then no one would ever buy these stocks because they're ridiculously expensive. It, it's all about underwriting the upside. And that's when you start getting into the acreage and the NAV conversation. And you better know what you're doing in terms of, of how to risk that, uh, both from a, certainly a financial standpoint, but I, I think good financial underwriting in that, that asset class starts with a good technical understanding of what it is. Right. And yeah. No, I remember back in, back 
in those days where I compared dollar per acre to dollar per eyeballs that they were sure. valuing internet companies. Dot com. Yeah. yeah. Dot com stuff. It was, it was, it was crazy. The, the, the whole thing I never understood because, you know, private equity, we would sign our confidentiality agreement. We would see our logs. We would see all our production history. We'd be able to look at the AFEs. We'd be able to look at actual costs. You know, we, we were kind of able to put it together. I never understood how you could make that technical assessment from the public data. I mean, and, uh, and uh, I actually have a theory that no one's ever gonna, gonna try and all, but if I ran a public EMP company, I think I might publish all my production data, individual curves, costs, and just put it all out there because I think at least some of the disconnect, I mean, we clearly have the green problem. We clearly have the red problem. But some of the valuation metric issues is just the uncertainty of I don't even know what that tail's worth. I sat on the board of a, a TSX Venture company that was backed by NCAP. And it was their first, I believe, first real non-North American international foray. It was a a reverse merge into an existing shell, very seemingly look and feel like SPAC um, called GFI. And it played by Canadian rules. And if you know anything about Canadian reserve reporting rules, they are a lot more granular, deeper and transparent, or at least they were at the time. I forget. It's like NI. I don't even remember the numerical designation. We actually had a reserves committee that I that I chaired at GFI. We had a lot of speculative on the come type of, of assets. So the question of, you know, how do I get my arms and mind around an NAV for this Gulf of Thailand asset that you've got or this nearshore Sumatra gas asset, um, we, we had to do a lot of, of disclosure around, and it, it was compelled by, by the reporting rules, as I recall at that time. And I've always, <clears throat> I've always believed that that is, you know, a significant blind spot. And you pointed it out. It's really hard on the public side without anything beyond production. You don't have pressure data. You don't have logs. You don't have a lot of stuff that a technical, technically proficient or an analyst with a degree of technical expertise has based upon, you know, the publicly available information. And you know, I'm jumping around here a little bit. One of the opportunities that we were given when I ran research at TPH back in 2015, you had a lot of petroleum engineers who were coming out of internships and now looking at full-time opportunities, or so they thought, that were having their offers rescinded at the 11th hour. And so we, we bolstered our E&P effort by bringing on some of that technical talent as junior analysts that were working with the the analysts and associates on on our ENP team and really added a lot of technical judgment, if you will, to I remember one of the engineers after he first started working, he pokes his head in, in my office and said, Can I ask you a question? I said, Yeah. Um as a kid from down in your area, he's I call I used to call him by a vowel. Right. <laughs> he had one of those last names that was lacking in vowels. <laughs> anyway, so, and I, I won't mention who it is. I think he's often, he might be off in private equity world. Um, but <clears throat> he said, 
do we normally do decline curve analysis in in a in equivalent units? He'd never, <laughs> never seen he'd never seen a BOE or an MCFE <laughs> decline curve, and that's you know that's typically the way it was done. Well, that was always my favorite thing. Private equity, we'd get a business plan, and you'd have the the deck come over, and there'd be BOEs of oil prices at 100, and you'd dig in, you'd figure out it was all gas or vice versa. Right. You know, it was whatever the commodity de jour was. Yeah, everybody started reporting in MCFEs when when gas was right was was cool or yeah. hot, and then we'd start changing the six to one ratio to yeah. twenty to one or whatever with price. But no, it just seems <clears throat> it seems like there's something to do with more information that would that would potentially help. Um, well, just give investors some certain, some certainty. And as we all know, uncertainty is bad in investing. Uncertainty is bad. And I think, I think the most interesting and complex problem out there for anyone who is problem solving analytically oriented is interested in an applied analytics career and certainly in the physical sciences, figuring out the subsurface in unconventional and how how to predict things like optimal well spacing and completion design. It's a very I, I used to say um, when I ran the technology group at Apache, it's the, it's the world's most complex or most difficult three dimensional nonlinear math problem. Yeah, and and one of the things that and you're looking at it through lenses that are kind of blurry. Well, you're I looking mean, at right? it, you're looking <laughs> you know you're, I mean? you're looking at it through a static lens. Number one. Correct. You have a model defined as the uh, the petroleum system, the geology, and the reservoir physics that you didn't build, right? Yeah. And you can't see it. Yeah. Except for maybe, you know, a small OD size of a full core or logs, which have, you know, radius of investigation that's, you know, not very, very big. So- what happens between there and a mile away geologically from a, you know, what, what kind of vari variability do I have? There, there's uncertainty. So how do we model that? I mean, we used to sit there and look at geologic maps that were 3D seismic driven. And you recognize that the data uh, that 3D seismic is based on is like 50 and 75 feet. You right. Know? I mean, so you so this, yeah, you this preci even... the precision is... You know, the, the precision that we normally think about in, say, manufacturing, right, it, it's not even close. Yeah. It, it just inherently is not. And that's, that's the, you know, we, we saw a number of third-party providers. I think the subsurface is horrendously difficult to predict and model. But I think where the industry is making great strides is figuring out how to integrate the numerical and the physical data. And companies have troves of 3D seismic, core data, fluid data, pressure data, all of that. And, and we used to joke, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the easy first commercialization and applied analytics in the oil field was high frequency drilling data and drilling analytics. Well, that was all pointed at drilling faster. Right. And drilling a better hole. Right. But there's a lot of derivative data that you can get out of, you know, like mechanical properties that come off the drill bit in the bottom hole assembly that you're recording at very high frequency. 
well, can I extend that into the model description that I'm using to figure out my completion design, for example, and how the reservoir is going to behave under certain well spacing and propent loading and depletion scenarios. All of that is got a ton of data blind spots in it. And the more you can effectively integrate into the model, the better your predictive model becomes. And you can start to rely on, you know, I can I can drill this section on a screen as opposed to having to actually do it brute force, trial and error. You know, in a in a 24 well pad, you can burn up a lot of capital and then find out you're wrong. Right. Or find out you suboptimize, you you overcapitalize, which is typically the problem. And so, well, you know, this was the wildest thing. It's so, hard. It's so we did a lot of leasing drills at Kane where we'd literally drill the first horizontal well in accounting. We were early stage assets and we kind of felt like our competitive advantage, all these engineers running around, they can see the latest and greatest in completion technology. So we can take something that works up in the Bakken and apply it to certain analogous rock in the Permian or whatever. That was kind of our shtick. And a lot of the mindset on that is let's go ahead and make sure we hit it with as big a hammer as we need to, to find out what the reservoir will do. And then you optimize later, right? right? You can make it cheaper. We can reduce frack sizes, whatever, but let's, let's don't under frack something and go, gosh, if we'd only hit it bigger, maybe we'd have a play. So we, we figure out that mindset. It's the total exact opposite figuring out spacing. If you think ideal spacing is eight, eight wells, you should drill four. Right. Because you're so penalized by the excessive capital. So it took, believe it or not, that sounds simple. It took us a while to figure that out. The thing that hit us with exponential type problems on it is stack and scoop. If the ideal spacing was eight and you use 10 wells or 12 wells, you would think, okay, well, I just spent, you know, two extra wells, four extra wells, it's capital. What we found was if you put one too many straws in the reservoir, instead of getting the whole milkshake out, but just costing too much, you'd get half the milkshake right. out. I mean, and it was it was absolutely crazy um sitting there trying to figure out figure out spacing. And and so What's wild is I think in 2019, the drilling results we had were call it 35% IRR on just DNC and actual results. We probably needed 45 to 50 to justify for what we, we paid for the acreage, but it was getting that spacing right. That's just crazy. And it, it's, it's so hard to do by trial and error because of the real dollars. I mean, that's an offshore well. You know, right. drilling I mean, a pad, what, right? What's, what's or a, even more. What's a, what, what's all the bells and whistles and facilities and everything else. If you're drilling a 20 well pad, that's probably close to $200 million. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are some exploratory wells, but the great thing about the, what I call the geologic driven model as opposed to the engineering driven model is, you know, once you do the logs and maybe some cores and DSTs, if you're going that far, you, you kind of know what you, you have from a commercial, a fundamental commercial standpoint. And so you stop spending money. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of unconventional that, you know, that I used to say the worst kind of dry hole you can drill is one that you have to complete before you know it's, it's dry. And 
most of the costs in unconventional is embedded in completion. Well, nobody listening to this podcast probably even remembers the phrase set pipe decision. Yeah, I, I've I've got some set pipe stories, but those are old old <laughs> old driller stories. But um yeah, I, look, I think um I, I think the the opportunity, the level of intellectual challenge of solving subsurface modeling and predicting through that modeling and more robust and integrated data sets and training data sets to get higher confidence in things like well spacing and completion design on the screen before you actually put a bit in the ground is is front of mind and and top priority. And I think the ENP industry as as I kind of ramped into analytics middle of the last part of decade at, at TPH and then carried it over to my time at Apache, I think the the ENP industry gets criticized a lot for being a, a bit laggard on you know, yeah, getting, go ahead and get rid getting, of getting ahead of digital, <laughs> Just say lagger. Di- yeah. digital disruption. Yep. Well, no one faces the the vexing problem, uh, and it's the most difficult problem to solve, of exactly what we've been talking about. The model's eight to 10,000 feet underground. You can't see it. You didn't build it. It's got horrendous variability, right? Right. It's got a lot of blind spots. And so- there are a lot of important things that you need to measure, and a lot of a lot of what we've done in the past over the long history of the industry is that a lot of the data is inferred, you know, surface pressure and and flow rates. Right. You're not directly measuring a lot of things. Now, you know, the industry before the the big event a year and a half ago was starting to really get some traction on things like fiber optic uh, da- dynamic data collection and completions completion operations but i can tell you from direct experience that stuff's expensive you know, you add that to a to a program you're you're adding significant capital cost now the costs were coming down pretty rapidly with innovation and i you know i don't know where that all stands now but um today and and who's doing what but um that informs a lot in your model Right. Yeah. And, you know, because when you look back at sort of the history of let's just call it big data. Right. Is there was always this promise that it was going to deliver and it never seemed to deliver. And I'd love to get your opinion. Is it we just didn't have enough computing power? Was it beta oil prices so drove our industry that you really just couldn't focus on it? Is it a mindset problem? What, what, why, why has big data not delivered and will it be different going forward? I think it was a fundamental strategy problem just for the industry. And I, we started to see this unfold in 2015, 16, 17. I remember um, one of the hotter than hell conferences that I hosted as head of securities. I think it was 2017. Every other sidebar presentation, you name it, there were the feature investor relations slides, you know, kind of the one-upsmanship on what we're doing in big data and analytics and digital. You know, everybody's everybody's kind of jumping. I, I call it the cool stuff model, okay. which is um, let's go get the cool stuff and good stuff will happen. We had a we had an ethos 
in, in our small but very high leverage data analytics organization is that we're going to be about ruthless prioritization, meaning what is relevant to making a commercial impact on the business to an E&P company. Uh, it's not about, you know, there was one operator, I don't remember who it was, and they've all done varying, had varying degrees of success and failure with their analytics efforts. Um, but there were some models that were out there trying to mimic Silicon Valley and building giant GNA uh, capabilities, GNA heavy capabilities in house. And one of the first things that I said or developed as a philosophy as I started learning about this, and I'll give some credit to an executive you probably know that got me really interested in it, <clears throat> is that you don't want to be you don't want to fool yourself into thinking that you've become a software development company because you've you're you're starting to leverage data and analytics. You, you, there's a lot of cool applications out there. A lot of them don't have relevance or are clunky or are really costly to maintain or become obsolete, especially if they're homegrown. You, you, you got to have the objectivity to be able to look at the outside world and the outside market to see what's available and what's relevant to your business. There's a great story out there um, that John John Gibson used to tell. Um, he's at um, what's the name of the company he runs these days? I don't know. He I'm was totally blank. He was a tech advisor for for Maynard at TPH for a long time. I love John, um, and he tells a story when he was running Landmark Graphics, and I forget what there's some generic mapping software that he had a need for, and he had a whole team of developers captive to Landmark. And he goes and visits one of the big Silicon Valley players and finds out that he can license the same capability for, you know, mere pennies on the dollar versus what he's paying to develop it in-house. And, you know, that was a very illuminating thing is that we've got, we've got to leverage markets and capabilities and tools that are not in our realm of expertise. And one of the things that's great about oil and gas companies that I also think is uh, another edge to the sword is that they're very good at problem solving, very good at analytics and math, and very good at building stuff. And so probably to this day, there's a lot of what is known as um, citizen data science going on, where it's you've taken it on as a, a sidelight and you want people to be fluent data fluent and data conversant and you want them to be um, kind of facile with the tools, but in an applied and in, in user way, not in a development way at an oil and gas company. That's that's my philosophy. Now we we did have those expert resources, but it is a thing in and of itself that requires, you know, a really professional grade approach. And you run the risk of not managing it that way toward some view of standards and standardization really fosters innovation. Conventional wisdom, I think, thinks about it the opposite way. But if you think about, you know, across the portfolio where you have thousands of the same type of artificial lift application rod pump, okay, can we solve with just good basic business intelligence level? I'm not talking about sophisticated stuff. What is the SCADA data telling us? about the behavior or performance of these 
these artificial lift installations, you know, fluid pound. Okay. Can I create a very efficiently prioritized and high, highly visualizable to make up a term, a series of pump cards that my maintenance folks can look at and optimize the work program related to artificial lift. That that's a very basic thing. It's it's not very sexy, but it's scalable. It is very low hanging fruit, and importantly, it's measurable. And so, when senior management teams like I was a part of and board started asking about what what value are we capturing and generating, I couldn't answer the question of okay, we're we're doing all this great, really sophisticated stuff down hole, because you you don't know until you've had some runtime producing a well, but in terms of uptime, cost reduction, uh, asset performance efficiency, uh, safety metric improvement, all of those things are immediately measurable and, and scalable in, in certain situations. A lot of low-hanging fruit. So I always believe you got to generate some early wins. When we started on the digita- digitalization of the research library at TPH was our first effort we had a pretty quick failure because we tried to take on too much. We tried to boil the ocean instead of addressing, you know, some things that would lend lend themselves to immediate measures and observations that would then build momentum around enthusiasm for this stuff. Because uh, particularly when, you know, when you're in a, a down part of the cycle or the business is contracting and you're spending money on developing new capabilities, people look around and there's quite a bit of cynicism around that where it's actually upgrading tasks on on the most basic stuff. You're bringing in automation on things that have been unnecessarily manual for too long. Give you an example of that. Hedge funds used to send, or probably still do, they would send a a worksheet to fill out where they'd have your E&P analyst open each up open each one of their company models and run these sensitivities and populate this table for all these metrics at these seven price decks that I want. And they would send those out to probably half a dozen brokers. Well, we believe that getting paid for that, which is horrendously time consuming if you do it manually, literally opening each company model, changing price deck, and then transcribing each one of those metrics into the into the worksheet. Well, the first thing we did was automate that process. And I recall when we first tested it, and, and, and again, this is this is Ned's first reader stuff. This is very <laughs> remedial. You know, put a lookup page in each one of your models. You're you're not going to be able to automate everything, but but you can you can frame the problem where it literally is a push of a button and I can turn around that request in five minutes. And right. that, that makes my salesperson on the desk look really good. And my chance of getting paid for that completely rote exercise is, is pretty high, right? So I, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but no, it's, the, it's, the data is the thing, right? Yeah, and I wonder what the potential for it is going forward because every time you and I grab a beer – you give me an example. Isn't it of, mostly wine? Yeah, it's mostly wine. <laughs> the, uh, but when we chat about it, there's always a data-driven thing that we talk about. 
that results in savings. And I'm on the board or the advisory board of Montrose Lane, and they're investing in energy technology stuff. And I just see such a huge potential there for running really good, efficient businesses. And it just doesn't seem to happen. And, you know, all these things that I'll just kind of scatter plot throw at you, you know, we have to build everything in house. We can't use generic off the, that makes no sense to me. Um, everything in my mind should be data driven. I mean, one of the things I've, I talked to one of the companies that does AI on Lyft and they say about 85% of the time company, the data proves out that the company's running the pumps too fast. That when, you know, when they actually get all the data, they present it and, and have performance to back it up. And it's because a pumper out there in the field who's really smart, I'm not denigrating the pumper, but they're making decisions like that. Sure. Just based on kind of gut feel. And this is how we always, always, always did it. And it just, it's shocking to me that we haven't been able to do better to this point. And I think we can. I had a venture tech firm and during my time on the beach here over the last several months that I've- We should have done this at the beach. <laughs> that, that I've, uh, I, I'll call them kind of informal advisory on some insights and a window into traditional energy, mainly oil and gas. And the, the, um, the venture partner starts asking questions around exactly what you're talking about. Surely the way it works is the enterprise system generates, you know, a problem and a solution that work gets digitally transmitted and is ultimately efficiently executed in the field, right? Because everybody's come that far and the oil field has not. And for a lot of reasons. Again, I think I think oil and gas, the upstream faces unique challenges that no other industry faces. I talked about the subsurface, but look at the just the aerial spread of the assets. Plus you're out you know, you're out exposed to climate and weather and all of the difficulties. Uh, in all the garden spots in the world, right? Right. And the, and the, and the communications issues that you sometimes find, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's a different animal. But having said all that, with fewer people, you know, another, another round of, or two of cuts that we've experienced here in the last couple of years, you're going to have to do, this is cliche to say, you're going to have to do more with less in terms of eyeballs and arms and legs. And that's where the data, you know, filling in those blind spots and maybe making you a bit more both corrective and predictive, just in very routine, mundane, boring stuff, whether it's, you know, doing more predictive or relationship analysis on things as simple as geotab data that you collect on your fleet vehicles to make people more aware of certain behaviors in driving that lead to a higher correlation or higher risk of incidents, right? I mean, how many, how many company vehicles are scattered throughout the oil field that have that same 
you know, you can get that, that they call it a dongle from your insurance company that records all of your, your driving data. There's a tremendous amount of already built in data quality and conditioning into that data set that you can immediately use to start identifying patterns and relationships to make you better at execution. And in this case, in this example, it is, you know, the all important, we want people to go home with, with the well-being they left the house because as you guys, digital wildcatters in particular has been very out front talking about is this is a, there's a lot of, a lot of folks out there taking a lot of risk. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous environment always has been. Safety should actually matter. So the data can help you. Um, I, I think, you know, we, well, that was that was because you and I have talked about that. That literally, a punchline to studying that data was, don't put the truck in reverse. Yeah. Again, it's it's crawl, walk, run. It's finding finding the hierarchy of commercial impact. If you were able to scale this, which is where standardization comes in, I don't want a bunch of proliferation of data sets and technology tools. I want simple and standard. I think all the way back to, you know, why one of the reasons Southwest Airlines was such a low cost provider, they use the same aircraft configuration yeah. and they simplified the cockpit and the instrumentation, yep. right? That's a long time ago, but that principle I think is, is very, relevant to how we think about, and I'll go back to the cool stuff, strategy inclination that I think was driving a lot of the first response to the NP industry's got to get, get hip with big data. We start talking about it in every investor presentation or conference. Well, what are we actually doing that fits and aligns with the business and helps us do what we're trying to do, which is improve margins and free cash flow? and get more capital efficient, right? Improve safety and environmental performance. Those things aren't way up the, in in a lot of cases, I split it into below ground, which is what I talked about earlier, and then all this stuff above ground, both operationally and safety, safety, health, and environmental ESG, whatever you want to call it. There's all kinds of data that you already have from your normal operational cadence and there's a ton of underutilized data out there. Because the thing I hear is we use less than one percent of the data we've collected. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's and, and right, it's, but... it's somewhat ironic that the oil field is the original big data. If you think about three D seismic, right? And some of the largest um, dedicated uh, computing centers that have been built specific to an industry are the ones that some of the majors have built for themselves. Yeah, it was the it was the government, the military, and oil and gas. Right. Yeah. So, um, I I think that there's a a justifiable reticence, and I think that's what you alluded to in your Montrose Lane example is that there's a lot of really great potential here. The sales cycle from an outside provider, a technology provider to an oil and gas company is much longer than certainly a venture tech person would I think people get married believe. sooner than you're actually able to sell 
technology to a major. In, in fact, in one of the of one, one of the questions in one of these advisory that that makes it sounds like it sound like it was more of a big deal than it was, but I got the question. Well, you know, what are we looking at in terms of of sales cycle with oil and gas companies for this technology? Is it is it weeks? Is it months? I said no. It's more like quarters and years. Yeah. Right. There there is a there is a just I think a cultural reticence. There's some of that. I think the the problems are unique and uniquely difficult. The applications are tougher, but I also think there's a view that they've got to be so complex and sophisticated in many cases that you end up being scared off by the price tag or it's expensive. And clearly in the last year and a half, two years, we're in an environment where every discretionary expenditure has come under extreme uh, scrutiny and has been cut, right? Uh, I think the flip of that is this business now for the next layer improvement, yeah, you took a lot of costs out of the system, for example, and you've probably gotten better at high grading. I think you were in a debate on Twitter the other day asking why, you know, production's not down more. And I think it's on the capital and the and the expense side, it's it's high grading, right? You have the golden screwdriver on the maintenance side. You have high grading on picking and choosing um, kind of your tier one or your core locations that you that you drill. And there was a good answer in there around kind of duck blow down too. Right. But um, from from this point forward, I think a lot of it's going to be hoovering up the pennies, nickels, and dimes and doing that thousands and thousands of times over. And it's a really boring thing to talk about on the surface. But if I can, if I can improve uptime because I've high-graded my maintenance intelligence through simple analysis of daily SCADA data that gives me a good way to prioritize well work, Scale that up over hundreds, if not thousands, of wells. That you know that that makes a meaningful difference. If I had a, if I had one thing I could tell CEOs out there, just my two cents worth, sitting on the sidelines is, dude, your internally generated cash flow is all you got, right? And that's the foreseeable future, right? So if you want to spend extra dollars doing this, that, or that, guess what? That's what you're eating at. That's the pantry, you know, because. I don't see capital coming back in a meaningful way. We talked about this on the BDE show this week is, you know, if you're 3% of the S&P 500, every money manager to some degree is judged on how they perform vis-a-vis the S&P 500. Well, guess what? You can't hurt them or help them, so they're going to ignore you. Right. You're not relevant. Yeah. And And, and you're not going to stick your neck out. No CIO is going to stick their neck out, you know, for taking – a big risk in something that doesn't move the needle. I yeah. mean, you'd have to make kind of radical changes. And we got to remember these investment teams, these PMs and CIOs, they're, they're worried about job security too. Yeah. Right? So so if we look at the the industry, let's do this. We've got tons of technology, tons of data I think we can use to improve that we just haven't. We've been, we've been a laggard. Um, two things. 
how do we get the industry to improve that way? And then number two, what's the magnitude of that? If we have if we have a dollar of cash flow today, and let's just say it's seventy five dollar oil to to pick something, and this is spitballing, so you know we're you know make it any assumption you want with good best practices, studying data, can that dollar turn into a dollar twenty, a dollar fifty, two dollars? Any idea? Uh, I'm just recollection in early pilots on again the the more mundane above ground immediately addressable optimization opportunities 20 to 30 percent is highly achievable gotcha. in terms of operating margins and there, there's probably not full objectivity in terms of how your portfolio is performing and i i can go off into this philosophical tangent as well but I would say one of the things that I learned as a PM and all the great tools and technology that we have in, in, in a public portfolio, I can see individually and then on an integrated basis how my portfolio is performing. Contribution, you know, asset level contribution returns, all of those, you know, portfolio management overlays that we are now able to see that. There are others who are way more proficient today, and I'm sure the technology has improved since I last ran money. I fundamentally believe that even though it's got a different kind of duration and liquidity profile, I think an asset portfolio, a physical asset portfolio like E&P, like producing properties, you approach it with the same dynamic or active portfolio management perspective, right? An approach. And that is inherently, uh, it requires much more data feeding a, you know, my, my grand vision was having a dashboard. I love dashboards. Right. A dashboard for my producing portfolio. Yeah. If, if that makes sense. No, that, and, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, 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 and then I can make, you know, you know, all these predictive things that you can do subsurfaces as the technology and the learning and the trained data sets get more and more accurate in terms of what the NPV potential is of this particular undeveloped lease. And, you know, is there something across the lease line that I know that my operator, uh, that my competitor doesn't know? You know, is there a trade opportunity? Uh, because I can confidently predict what what the economic profile of that undeveloped asset looks like. And I should always be thinking about that and evaluating my portfolio in that regard and looking to transact around that if I've got something that is dragging on the portfolio performance. Way easier said than done. But that is a, that is a coordinated um, data-grounded way to manage I think any asset portfolio. Again, the 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 timelines, liquidity, the uh, the ease with which trades are made, transactions are are conceptualized and completed. That's that's all different. But you can you, you can apply some of the same portfolio management philosophies that an active portfolio manager would to a to a stock portfolio. If that well, makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I and I do think it's interesting you bring up portfolio management. 
because too often I think we've been tied to growth for the sake of growth and you can't get smaller. I would actually reward a management team that went through and said, this 25% of our assets, we just can't operate this as well as other people. If we could split the baby with somebody else operating it and either get paid for that or just let them operate, I, I think would make a lot of sense. It's it's the 80-20 rule. You know, if you're spending 80% of your time, energy, and effort on 20%, that's the problem. Just get rid of the 20%. You, you don't, I don't care how big you are. If you've got, you know, if you've got 10, 15,000 legacy wells in the Permian, for example, you don't, you don't have the, you don't, you don't have the capacity to do kind of full optimized management of all of those assets. And I, I think there are countless examples out there that you could go uncover with a little legwork. <clears throat> but around that whole issue, and it's, it's not just a function of what's happened lately, I, there, there's just real inertia in, yeah. in the culture, right? Because you do believe that you are best suited to own and operate that asset. Yeah. Now, there, there are some other externalities that I think come into play. Um, we're going to see more of it. If I bring someone in and hand, hand over operatorship, for example, you know, are they posing some risk to you know, all the things we've been talking about here lately in the, in the ESG realm? Right. right? So – there's there's a whole other liability conversation and assessment that that has to happen now because of the crosswinds of all that in the industry. So so kind of action plan coming out of this podcast. If we were to go buy an oil and gas company, I mean, you look at portfolio management, figure out the assets you can actually do well versus not do well, and figure out something to do with them. We're looking at data, and I like how you break it down kind of above the ground, below the ground. We're digging through data, looking for early wins. I, re I really like that because I think at least what I've seen being involved with Montrose Lane and some of their portfolio companies discussing things, the adoption takes so long and the results that are expected are immediate, and if they're not there, it it shuts down the whole system. So we're looking above ground. We're going to figure out kind of uh, immediate things. And then it just gets us into the, the below ground, much bigger, bigger issue there in terms of figuring out how to manage the reservoir. Well, you, you really, you really hit the nail on the head when you said, I don't see how someone on the outside, a, a cell site analyst, for example, can, can do diligence or underwrite the assets because you're missing so much data. On the flip, companies have access to great data that has far more leverage than is being exercised. The the subsur figuring out the subsurface optimization, the well spacing completion design to put it more succinctly, is a long horizon exercise. And you're going to get uncomfortable questions at the outset. Because you're spending, it's not a lot. You can do a lot with a lot less than people think. But you need to bring in some capability and expertise 
in the data science and engineering capability, for example. You don't need a lot of it, but you need the right mix. Um, the above ground is where you know the 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 crawl comes in, and you're starting to generate easy wins. Again, I didn't really like, don't really like having to to include explicitly digital or or technology in the conversation about strategy. I think it should just be inherent. But the whole thing starts with the foundation of data. And where a lot of this stuff breaks down is the slog, which is very manual that you have to go through. It's it's the least glamorous part of all this, is that you have got to condition the data. Yeah. Right? That's a manual exercise. However, I will say on some of the things that we had going on in my organization, meeting with you know, the experts and the asset teams and and stepping back and doing some of this. This became cultural. It didn't become, I have to ask you about this. It was just natural. One of the real kind of enthusiasms that came out of all that, you know, turning into a data-led culture and organization was this has given us the reason and time to step back and really look critically at our data and condition it, which again is not, that's not the sexy glamorous part of all this. But you can't really jump over that to the cool stuff and expect to get really great results. And cynicism, I think, has has set in over a period of time because we 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 wanted to go around that and get to the really cool stuff as an industry. And the problems are just really, really hard. But there are some things that are very straightforward from a business intelligence standpoint. I don't I don't need to be up here on the most sophisticated part of the continuum. I can be down here at basic business intelligence. And making a real commercial impact on the business, improving, you know, uptime, improving safety performance, improving, you know, I, I, I don't know where, you know, fugitive methane uh, emission surveillance is coming in, but I got to believe that there's a lot of really low cost effective um, programs that are being set up that are leveraging baseline data that can be captured through some fairly low cost, but very reliable uh, technology. All those things are going to be important. You know, the ESG conversation, we, we could, I guess, do another whole other podcast on that. I, I want to know what, what I impact and influence. I want to know how to measure it. And when I go out and measure it again based on something that I've done to address it, can I prove through the data and through the measures that I've actually improved it or right. performed to that, <clears throat> to that objective? Yeah, no, I think I think when we look at kind of those ESG type metrics, I think we need to do two things. Exactly what you just said, measure improvement and show all that data. The other thing we have to do is we have to develop, I think, qualitative narratives around that because raw data of we went from point four to point two is great. We've shown a trend, but is point two really, really bad or is point two, oh my gosh, that's great. Right. So, I, and and I think that kind of goes back to one of the problems we've had in our industry is we're just not very good at telling a story because we don't have to market, right? We we generate a barrel of oil, we just sell it, and and no offense to uh, my esteemed guest today, but we're run by a bunch of engineers that right. don't tell stories, and so 
being able to kind of craft true, believable, responsible narratives around what the data actually means is important. Because if we don't, we let somebody else define it, you know? And, and as I had started having conversations after kind of the, the big upset in spring of 2020, you know, we, we started talking pretty regularly then. I, I still believe that the industry is going to accelerate in this regard. And then there's tremendous opportunity to play a role. And, you know, my, my quest to get back in the arena is oriented around that because I think, I think this is going to be the most, the, the next decade plus is going to be the most interesting one of my career for so many reasons. A lot of, a lot of it is the competition for equity capital, um, ESG crosswinds, um, just pure investment performance, which is now, you know, what people point to and say the industry is finally being tasked with generating actual sustainable free cash flow and, and good returns, both on and of, right? And so there's a lot more discipline, you know. The business has gotten more complex. It's 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 just the problem solving is is much more interesting. And I think I think if you if you have a data advantage, you're going to be better at it. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. If if not, just uh, as a, a dry run uh, with another Zoom wine session, or maybe uh, yeah, there we go. Ne- next time we'll the Richmond. Wine. I know where the Richmond house is. There we go. Next time we'll wine. I, I, I will put a plug in for. Um, one of my guys that I executive produced, big distinction, several years ago in my one record Nashville recording career, is got a new release out. It's got uh, it's an artist named Rick Huckabee. He's playing up in the woodlands. He released his new album called Long Ride Home on Monday the third, and he's playing out at the Big Barn Dosey Do uh, in the woodlands, which is a great music coffee house venue. Um, He's opening for Marshall Tucker next Wednesday night, and then he's playing an acoustic show at the Dosi Do so, Whiskey Bar on Research Forest on Thursday night. So if we get our act together next Wednesday night, literally we can drop this Wednesday morning. So it'll be tonight. As you're listening to this, tonight, Wednesday. He, he's playing two shows. He's opening for Marshall Tucker Band at the Big Barn, which is right there on I-45 between on southbound I-45 access road, frontage road, my dad calls it access road, uh, between Woodlands Parkway and Sawdust, but then farther north on Research Forest, which is one of the east-west corridors through the woodlands, there's another do do venue, which is a barbecue joint whiskey bar. He's playing an acoustic set, a full kind of headlining acoustic set there on Thursday night after he opens for Marshall Tucker. But Rick is a... 25-year Nashville guy, Louisiana boy. His dad uh, head basketball coach at Marshall University. Um, he's he's kind of rocker at his core. One of one of my favorite Nashville friends that I have. Uh, great songwriter, great musician. So January twelfth and thirteenth. Twelfth and thirteenth. Yep.